Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Picture the movie, This is Spinal Tap. At one point, they're at a big party, a big album release party, and there are weeders who are mimes. Uh, and they're from a catering company run by a mime, played by uh, Billy Crystal. Uh, and the name of the catering company is Shut Up and Eat. Uh, <laughs> and he's he's constantly talking to these mime waiters, saying, did you do the thing, the walking against the wind thing? They didn't like that. Uh, he also, I think at another point, says, mime is money, mime is money, except mime really isn't money. And that's the way mimes are depicted mostly these days, is ironically. Playfully is the best that they can hope for, and sometimes derision is more the case. And that is not helped by the revelation uh, recently that Ted Cruz was at one point a mime. There are even pictures of him in whiteface. So, is there any rehabilitating mimes? We think there is, and of course, mime is perfect for radio. So, that's the show we're about to do for you Mime on the Radio, right after the news. Well, how is that even mime music? <laughs> hey, well, I don't know. It, it is mime music. All right. So first of all, welcome to our show. Uh, we are doing a show about mime because, of course, we're a radio show. So we have to do a show about mime. Um, I, I will say that it's probably not the craziest thing the show has ever done. And in fact, in my career, I one time had the Flying Karamazov brothers juggle on the air. Think about that. Juggling on the radio. But we did want to do a show about mime. I should say, just by way of introduction, you know how people say some of my best friends are blank, blank, blank? Well, growing up, some of my best friends were mimes. One of my best friends in high school actually left high school and went to Paris to study with the Etienne de Crew and came back, and I actually produced a, a mime show that he did. Uh, and we, I learned a lot about what it's like to be a mime anyway. And I was... I was the kid in high school who hung around with the mimes. And okay, the other mime that I kind of know is Mark Lynn Baker. Mark Lynn Baker, who's gone on to all kinds of movie stardom and Broadway stardom. He started out around here and he did a mime and he was a street mime and he would do stuff like pretend to fish out of the storm drains and stuff like that in whiteface. And whenever I bring this up with Mark, I'll run into him every, every once in a while and I bring it up with him and he gets, he tenses up visibly. And it's like, you know how James Cameron dropped Piranha 2 from his list of films that he directed at a certain point you know he just dropped the oldest one off i feel like mark is trying to drop his mime life off and i, I see it. there's no reason for that as you're going to see because one of the points we're going to make and we're going to make it right now with a just the perfect guest to do it we are so honored and lucky to have with us doug jones award-winning actor best known for his roles in hellboy and hellboy 2 pan's labyrinth and most recently or very recently anyway as the uh, amphibian man in guillermo del toro's the shape of water and uh, currently starring also as commander Sir on CBS's Star Trek Discovery. Uh, Doug is also a trained mime and contortionist, and he's joining us from studios in, oh, in Toronto. And Doug, there's one more thing I have to say, which is before we get going here, which is as another layer of kind of, I hesitate to say insanity, but we, all, we actually do a regular feature, which we are doing today called Radio for the Deaf. We provide radio programming for a deaf audience. And the way we do this is that in the studio with me are two American Sign Language interpreters. So we're doing a show about mime that's going to be interpreted into American Sign Language by ASL interpreters. There's some meta way to talk about that, but I, I, it eludes me. So 
Doug Jones, I feel like after that windy introduction, I mean, the point I was leading up to is people think that they don't have mime in their lives, but then they go to movies like the ones that I just mentioned, and we're going to talk about other roles of yours that are like that and other roles that are like that in general. People watch a lot of mime. They just don't call it mime, right? That would be correct, right? Um, I feel that people can communicate with uh, visuals every day just on the street. Um, it doesn't have to be in a movie. So I, mime is a part of all of our lives, really. Um, That's how I feel. Yeah, but mime is a bigger part of your life than it is of many people's. And maybe, <laughs> right. maybe you can just give us a sense. I mean, uh, how did that come to be? I mean, as I said, I had a friend in high school who decided mm -hmm. to be a mime, but I mean, he was like the only person I knew doing that. So how about you? <laughs> right. Well, well, much like Mark Lynn Baker, your friend, um, <laughs> when I mention mime, I kind of have to cringe and, and wonder who's going to throw what at me because <laughs> people tend to hate mimes. Um, but... For me, it started in college at, at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. Um, I lived in a dorm, and down the hall from me was Reed K. Steele, a senior when I was a freshman. And he ran the, the student-run mime troupe on campus called Mime Over Matter. Get it? <laughs> and I, uh, so I, he, he saw how, I, how tall and lanky I was and how I talk with my hands all the time and was rather goofy in the lunchroom. So he asked me one day, have you heard of mime and would you come see one of our shows? I did. Loved it. And then he asked me to audition for the troupe. I did. And so that became a freshman to, through senior year thing of mine at college. And then I, I developed my own my own solo act uh, out of that as well. So that's that's how I my beginnings happened. And then I, I right after I graduated college, I, I was a street mime at a theme park in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, Kings Island. And um, boy, that that was an unforgiving summer. Uh, <laughs> you have, you know, because your your average uh, theme, your people waiting for, in line for a roller coaster aren't really in the mood. Maybe sometimes for a quiet guy with a white painted face and black lines under his eyes, it, it it scared the children to death. It really did. <laughs> Why isn't he talking? Why isn't the clown talking? It's, I'm not a clown. I couldn't say that. Ah, I couldn't talk. Very embarrassing. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, so um, one of my two my friends from my past, the one that I knew better, is, is this guy David. And David was a very small and slight uh, adolescent. Uh, mm -hmm. And he went to France, studied with the Etienne de Cru, the young Jessica mm -hmm. Lang was also in that class. And he came back, mm -hmm. and there was one day where, and he really had, you know, had just conditioned himself. I mean, there's a lot of conditioning that goes into this. One day for fun, two of the really big football players tried to hold David down, and they couldn't do it. Um, he wiggled out of it, did he? Yeah, and he was. There was also just a tremendous strength. I mean, you develop muscles, right, that nobody else develops. Right. When you're holding poses, well, when you, you when you do it, illusions like leaning on a mantle that isn't there, or right. opening a window and climbing through it that isn't there, mm -hmm. uh, it it does develop a muscle set that that other people just don't use or develop, right? His strength in certain ways was really startling. Well, now, I have to say mm -hmm. something, which is that you've been in some scary uh, movies and scary TV shows, The Strain, <laughs> The Terror of Hallows' Eve, Bye-Bye um, Man. Uh, these are mm -hmm. Hocus Pocus. Uh, these are some pretty—John dies at the end. These are some pretty scary movies. Um, the thing that you have been in that you have done very early in your career that is terrifying to me— Utterly, uh -oh. starkly terrifying. Uh, was the, it a commercial? Yes, it was the McDonald's yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. I get, I get two stories on that. Either people loved him or were terrified of him. Yeah, I was really oh. afraid of him. And I think, I think, well, I, anyway, you, you should say a little bit. Tell that story. You were the technically you were the McDonald's Mac Tonight character, but this was sort of a crescent moon thing 
being. Right. It was the yeah, right. Some people call me the Moon Man. Yeah, I was a, a a human body with a with a crescent moon with a face on it for a head. And uh, that was puppeteered by off-camera uh, puppeteers and, and the, the mask makers. But that was one of my early gigs, <clears throat> getting paid as an actor, was, was that TV commercial campaign. But it was a huge success and for, for those who weren't terrified of it. And it, it ran in, in a worldwide uh, and went on for three years. I made 27 commercials as that character. And that was kind of um, the spot that that um, that I was discovered from, really, uh, because Creature Effects people would come and help us work on those commercials from other shops like Rick Baker's and Stan Winston's and um, Greg Canham's, like, you know, all those award-winning makeup artists that have their own shop would have people, we would borrow them for our commercial shoots, and they would go back to that shop, and then a movie or TV show would come through with a, a long, lanky alien character concept, and they would say, oh, I just worked with this guy, you know, who moves well in with a lot of crap on his face, and he doesn't complain about it. So I think we need, <laughs> so I got, <laughs> so the referral process started early for me uh, with that. And the the mime training, the mime background is what really kind of, I think, helped me along the way because that art form is what woke my body up to understanding that you can communicate with, with things other than verbal words. Um, we have, we have a, a huge vocabulary visually, all of us do. And if you, and being a mime, you have to rely on that because you don't have words. You know, a lot of these roles that you do, Doug, are roles for which you cannot prepare. I mean, no, mm. I, or let me I, let me put it a different way. There are, roles, study, yeah. there are roles for which there is no template, you know? No I mean, research, if right. You're gonna, if you're going to be Richard III, you can think, well, you know, I'll be kind of a little bit like Ian McKellen's Richard III, but I'll be different <laughs> or something like that. But if somebody <laughs> says, look, you're going to be this fish guy, you know, whether mm-hmm. that's Abe Sapien in Hellboy or the amphibian in The Shape of Water, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or you're going to be this guy in Pan's Labyrinth. Um, I mean, what do you do? Well, how, I mean, there isn't there isn't right. an existing obvious vocabulary, so to speak, for for these roles. So, what do you do? Right. Well, you you do find out what what you can from the script. Now, so now what you just mentioned, be, being that that I was an animal man hybrid in, as Abe Sapien and the Fish Man from The Shape of Water as well, I do have something to pull from nature. Mm-hmm. A fish, right? And I've seen fish. Um, so Abe Sapien was was more of a study of of the fish that were in my my uh, my home aquarium. Mm-hmm. I uh, I loved how their fins moved, how their curious heads were like darting around, and their fins would glide, you know, elegantly behind them. It's like, okay, so that's what I gave Abe Sapien. Well, then when Guillermo del Toro, the same director, came back to me saying, I want you to play another fish man in uh, The Shape of Water, the the challenge was to make him not Abe Sapien. So we changed up the body language a bit and made him a bit more more stoic, more heroic, more more um, a, a cross between a superhero and a um, t- and a toreador from you know a, a matador, with those sexy hip movements. I, I had to lead with my pelvis, sort of a thing, and and not be so fluid in the hands with with like fin like. Uh, so so I had to. That was more. That was more because he was worshipped as a river god in, right. in the Amazon. That, that's the backstory of the amphibian man. From and, and we eventually discover he's good in bed, so to speak. Sure, sure. So, so I, I didn't want to play up the fish too much because that <laughs> then it turns into something else. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so we we played up more of the mis- mysterious river god. Is he or isn't he? Kind of thing with a with a sexy heroic po- stance was the idea. 
You know, it seems to me that another odd paradox of this is that training as a mime, when you train as a mime, you are training essentially to use your body in a pretty much direct and uncontained by anything else way. In other words, in fact, there's sort of, you know, a lot, the, a lot of the conventions of mime are about you know, nothing mm-hmm. to distract you from the movements of the of the body itself, including, you know, the, the white face, I guess, is sort of part of that. Um, mm-hmm. But you wind up in a lot of these roles where they're just putting crap all over you, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. And, yeah. yeah well, talk about that. Well, I find that so, yeah, so much of the of my early tra- mime training involved facial expression as well. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like that's, and I think that's why the white face with the black lines on it because it does heighten your 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 eyebrow movement, your eye movement, your mouth movement if they're outlined and you know if there are lines and and that indicate it, it just it it they respond. Those lines respond very well to your facial expressions and actually help you tell that that nonverbal story. So when you move from that into playing a creature that has uh, you know, layers of latex or silicone makeup over your face, it's harder to get those expressions through. So you do need to, to rely on a tilt of the head, a, a, a glance, um, all of that positioning language that, that will indicate an emotion or a, a feeling. And as an actor, too, this is what I, I have to combine the actor, Dougie. Uh, so I really have to feel those things in order for it to come out of my body correctly and, and with convincingly. For an audience, so with that, you know, comes also hand ex- expressions and and gestures, and a posture that, that was either either you know erect and proud or huddled over and getting sickly or you know any anything can can come into play there. And now, and, and now, as Shakira has taught us, your hips cannot lie. Uh, they don't they lie. Must not exactly. Lie. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, it's tough to do the um, Doug Jones uh, audio montage highlight reel, but you know what? We're going to do it. What happened to going with your gut? Well, my gut is telling me to turn things around. My gut is telling me that this is what I should do. It is well known that my species has the ability to sense the coming of death. I do not sense it today. You rock-tooth mop-ride firefly from hell! I've waited centuries to say that. She's... she's like me. Creature from another world. Yeah, it doesn't work as audio, but um, well, but but you know, I've never just listened to myself like that before. Those were four distinctly different voices. Yes, so thank were. you for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk about actor Dougie. Uh, I think you just yeah. called him that. Um, I did. So. I, and I'm going to tell you a pretentious name droppy story, uh, and it begins okay. this way. I was having lunch with uh, James Earl Jones, and that's actually really true. So I was, this is a long, long time ago. He's down in New Haven to play either Timon of Athens or Timon of Athens. I think that year mm. it was Timon. But anyway, so ah. I, and this is the 1980s. Uh, and so I said to him something about, well, you know, you play Darth Vader uh, in the movie. And he goes, I don't play Darth Vader. There's an actor named David Prowse uh, uh, who plays Darth Vader. I supply the voice for Darth Vader. And I would imagine to you that's a pretty important distinction and that you also are saying, you know, huzzah, James Earl Jones. (laughs) Right. Uh, I've I've been voiced over only a couple times, but there were were a couple of key times that that almost ruined me. Um, (laughs) I didn't want to be known as the guy who gets voiced over. Right. Because, uh, you know, my 32-year career, I've been providing my own voice for almost every character, every character, really, except for the, the first Hellboy movie. Um, I wasn't a name at that time. And, and um, 
so uh, David Hyde Pierce was what was, and uh, and so the studio thought it would be you know a good marketing plan to get a name actor tied to that character that would be on the poster of the movie with with Hellboy with Ron Perlman. Um, so I was voiced over by David Hyde Pierce in Hellboy One, but I got my own voice back for Hellboy Two. That's all me, <laughs> and then the Silver Surfer as well. I was voiced over by um, Lawrence Fishburne, um, but again, and that was kind of a surprise to me. I didn't know that until the Hollywood Reporter said so. I was like, what? Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, so now uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of protected now. My, going into a film or a TV show, I'm, I, I, that's a part of the deal. I will be voicing this myself or you'll find someone else. I just think that's how it has to be now. Yeah. It, it's hard. I don't want to be known as Dub Jones. Right. Plus, we got the audio reel to prove it. You, you know that yeah, yeah. these are very distinct, as you say, very, yeah. very, very distinct characters. So I feel as though... Um, that this is another pretentious question. Uh, that the, <laughs> that kinesis, the movement, is the thing that's one of the things that's hardest to talk about. I used to teach mm -hmm. writing, and one thing I would do is take my writing class to a dance class and I, I, mm. like write what you see because movement has—it's not like color or sound. It doesn't have necessarily uh, as big a vocabulary that goes with it. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, mm -hmm. you know, Guillermo del Toro, if he wants you to. I think he's got to direct you, <laughs> mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I would imagine finding the language to talk about that, given the fact that Guillermo del Toro and the other directors you work with, you know, they're not Alvin Ailey or something. I don't know. Do they, right. What do they tell you? Right. Well, uh, Guillermo is, is great at collaborating and he does love the mime part of me. He's often told people, you know, on film sets, like, uh, you know, when someone's trying to, maybe even a cameraman is trying to get me to do something so the light shines better on me or whatever, um, uh, he might say, uh, no, D trust Dougie, he's a mime. He said that many <laughs> times on, on the set, so I really appreciate that part of him. Uh, and if, if he, he, he'll tell me, uh, he wants me to get from point A to point B. He'll, he'll, he'll map out the, uh, you know, the blocking and the choreography of the scene, but then he'll let me play and, and fill in the gaps between those two points. He's very, very good about just letting me have my. Have, that's why he brings me on. Is he? He trusts what I bring in the room with me. Which he trusts any actor he brings in. So I, I love that about him. Another director that I really did love working with was in Hocus Pocus, Kenny Ortega, mm -hmm. who was a dance choreographer before uh, a film director. He also directed Newsies, big musical uh, movie, and he loved. Uh, you know, collaborating with shapes and, and silhouettes. So Billy Butcherson, also a very physical role for me. I'm a zombie who woke up after 300 years of being dead. Uh, by the way, this is our 25th anniversary this year for that movie. So, yeah, I know. It's a good excuse uh, for a party. Although uh, any day, <laughs> right? Right. So, uh, uh, so I, I did enjoy a director like that who was also very visual. Uh, and, and Guillermo del Toro has he, he is fascinated by my tall skinniness for some reason. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so these creatures that he keeps creating that are these long, lanky fellows uh, and ladies from Crimson Peak. I was two of his ghost ladies in that as well. Oh, that's right. I'd yeah, forgotten so, about that. Yeah. So he, he, uh, he and, and he'll even say sometimes, you know, he. Um, you know, Crimson Peak's a great example. When I was the mother ghost floating down the hallway to, at the beginning of the movie about to haunt the, the um, uh, uh, young character who, uh, who became Mia Wasikowska you know, later in the movie when she grew up. Um, I'm floating down the hallway with my hands sort of floating in front of me. And he said, Dougie, more piano fingers. So he wanted to see those. <laughs> he wanted to see my fingers like moving more for, for whatever reason. So 
Uh, piano fingers is something I've I've heard many times out of his mouth. Right. Well, I, I would say Guillermo del Toro, uh, and no offense uh, intended here, but is probably one of the few people uh, in here in the 21st century who r- routinely says, "Trust him, he's a mime." Um, <laughs> one of the very few. <laughs> it just words words that don't get said that often. They probably. don't get said that much. That's right. That's so right. Uh, you know, obviously, you you've now you have this wonderful uh, enviable career. I'm sort of wondering about like you know, I like the guys that I. I grew up with who were classical mimes and like well my good friend david he stopped being a classical mime at a certain point but i mean mm-hmm. i don't know is it is it this the way that you're doing this is this sort of the way that you live and thrive and survive and prosper mm-hmm. as a mime is can you just like be a mime or you know well, I, I've done both. I, um, I do. I do appreciate uh, being able to take the mime skills and putting it into a character that you're not expecting a mime from. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I also I, I played a classic white faced, you know, black lines around the eyes mime uh, with a striped shirt and a leotard on. Uh, in I did a, a sketch in In Living Color with um, uh, Damon Wayans as Homie the Clown, where he beat me over the head in the park because you know a clown facing off with a mime that's right. funny. Mm-hmm. I also did a, a guest star role on an old show called The Nut House. It was on for, I think, I think it was canceled after four episodes. Uh, it was with Harvey Corman and Cloris Leachman, a hilarious uh, uh, show. And the gag I did on that was um, I was a mime outside the street and somebody walked by and stepped on my foot and I yelled, ah, and I started going into a big rant. Yeah. Um, I did a couple commercials too, a lot of commercials. Um, uh, one, uh, one for Trex Outdoor Decking, where I was on somebody's outdoor deck acting out all of the, the attributes of Trex decking that it's, you know, it's not wood or uh, it, it's something. And this night, and uh, and then the dog chases me off. And I did a, a Toyota commercial too, where um, I was a mime, street miming in front of some little girl. And all of a sudden, a, a, a Toyota truck drives by, and I try to lasso it, and it and with my fake rope, it drags me down the street. Uh, so basically, as a mime, uh, everything I've done on film, uh, TV or film, as a mime has been to make fun of the mime <laughs> you don't yes. need to or to or to abuse the mime uh so when you when you're because i guess it's that thing that you know people don't like being followed around the park being made fun of by a mime mm-hmm. uh so so if you're going to portray a mime on film you must make fun of him so I, that's fine but then i but so i think the the more satisfaction for me has been yeah to take the mime skills and put it into a creature from another world and uh and um you know, give embody some some sort of fantastical beast that that no one would expect. Are are you doing? Are you using mime training for Commander Saru on, on Star Trek Discovery? Well, again, uh, yes. Being being very much aware of my body from head to toe. Mm-hmm. If, if that's that's yes, I would say. Then I would say yes. Uh, this is another. Uh, here's the challenge now. After being an actor for 32 years. Every character I take on that, that is otherworldly, mm-hmm. I have to make him different than the last one I made, yep. and the last one, and the last one. So, uh, what what makes this alien move differently? Well, thank heaven, uh, something something wonderful and magical happened in the wardrobe or the uh, costume department when I was getting my first fittings done. They put me up in hoof boots, like so. My my species, Kelpians, uh, they have hoof bo- hoof feet, like a like a gazelle. So uh, these shoes they made for me are like something that I think Lady Gaga has worn on stage before. It's like high heel shoe without a heel under it. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of balancing on the balls of your feet. So, uh, so when I put those on for the first time and tried to walk around, I, my pelvis kind of went forward to keep my balance and my arms dangled slightly behind my hips instead of right next to them. So 
that created a supermodel walk, sort of like leading with the leading with the pelvis again, and then my arms swaying side to side instead of um, like a normal walking where, where your where your arms are going in opposition of your legs. They were going side to side behind me, so I let that swish with my hands kind of being fluid as they went side to side, and it became a very signature walk very quickly. Um, now I'm on your IMDb, p- p- IMDb page just so I can sort of see what's coming up. Looks like we get some vampire stuff coming up. Nosferatu in post-production. Okay. Uh, yes. What we do in the shadows. Yes. Yeah, okay, talk about this. <laughs> I'm excited about both of those things. Um, I, uh, uh, Nosferatu is, uh, well, he's, he's a character, the Count Orlock, uh, a.k.a. Nosferatu, is a character I've wanted to play ever since I was first saw it. I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I've always been entranced by vampires, but... You know, the, the young pretty ones are something that I I figured I would never, I, I can't sparkle. So I, I'm too old and gross for that. <laughs> so so Count Orlock is old and gross. I thought, oh, I can play him. And I understand him because he doesn't really know he's old and gross. He's an aristocrat from the days of yore, and, and he, I don't think he knows he's faded. So um, uh, I really connected with him emotionally. And so getting to play a, him in a remake that is coming out next year, in 2019, uh, I, I'm here post-production will be completed by December. So the distribution will short, happen shortly thereafter. Uh, we did it. It was, it was a, they're calling it a remix, green screen element in every shot of the movie. So that means that, uh, that we're, and of those green screen elements are going to be pulled from the original film. So I got mm. to play in the environment that Max Schreck got to play the character in back in 1922. I'm very excited about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then what we do in the shadows, that hilarious movie that came yes. out of the, uh, that team from, um, or was it New Zealand? New or Zealand, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, they are developed, we're developing a TV show uh, based on the same story. Uh, so I was in the pilot episode and it is, it has been sold and now will be coming out on FX channel. I'm not sure the dates on that. Uh, when it starts airing, but I am in the first episode, and I I play um, a baron from the old world, and it is hilarious. <laughs> just, oh, I just ah, I don't want to spoil anything else on that one. I don't know what I'm. I don't know if I was even allowed to tell you that much, but right. but uh, yeah, um, you'll you'll see me in a makeup that goes from head to toe. All right. Well, the good news is it just looks like, I mean, you're going to, I can see other projects here. You're going to keep working and that's uh, the best news of all. Uh, <laughs> and you've certainly established yourself as someone who can do very, very, very special things. And we're very honored, Doug Jones, to have you uh, on our show today. You've been a great guest and uh, uh, a great gateway, uh, a gateway drug into mime. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that what, is it, it starts here and then gets worse? Is that, well, yeah. some, something along those lines. So we're going to be talking to uh, Richard Knight uh, in the next segment. Uh, we're going to continue to talk uh, about mime here uh, but we're going to take a little break before we do that uh, here comes some music we're going to say goodbye to Doug and hello music Before we get to Richard Knight, um, I have to say, I don't usually say this, but uh, if there's uh, any way that you can go over to our Facebook page right now, Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page, and see the Radio for the Deaf version of this, um, you should just because, I mean, I had, because in fact Doug Jones was recorded yesterday, I could watch our wonderful interpreters, um, Mary Sue and Heidi, doing this. And it's, okay, ASL interpretation obviously is not mime, uh, but they have to use a lot of the same um, skills in some ways. They have to convey a tremendous amount of information and coloration, uh, emotional coloration, uh, without actually using any words. And so they're doing this amazing job. It's so much fun to watch them. 
So watching them talk about the thing that or, or interpret about the thing that we are discussing uh, and using so many of the same skill sets is, I don't know, it's pretty mesmerizing. So uh, yes, our Radio for the Deaf feed uh, is over there on the Colin McEnroe show uh, page. It's Mary Sue and Heidi, sorry. Um, okay, so um, here we go. We're going to talk to Richard Knight. Richard Knight has a tremendous background in classical mime. He's a mime artist, instructor, and physical comedy expert, currently working at the very prestigious East 15 Acting School on physical comedy. He's the author of Mime the Gap, Techniques in Mime and Movement. Welcome to our conversation, Richard Knight. Hello, Colin. So uh, maybe just to begin, uh, there are probably easier ways uh, to make your way in the world than being a mime. Um, but if you love it, if you have a passion for it, uh, you probably have no choice but to do it. Um, what kindled this passion in you? What made you want to do this with at least a lot of your life? Yes, I was dyslexic as a kid. Yeah. And um, I wasn't very good at uh, maths or English. And so I, I couldn't deal with numbers. It's kind of like being word blind. And so when you're kind of like that, you, you see the world in a physical sense. So I, I started to look at sports and play sports. Uh, I played lots of games and I realized that I could actually do very well physically. And hence I picked up breakdancing. And then I thought, wow, this was in the 80s. <laughs> and breakdancing was very popular, hence the moonwalk. And I actually um, picked it up very, very quickly. And then people were saying, hey, you're really good. I was going, no, I want to be an actor. And they said, oh, no, you should do mime. And then I realized, yeah, not everyone can do this. So that's how I started it, from being dyslexic. You know, you trained with some of the famous French masters. Uh, and, and we're also a little bit later going to be talking about uh, Etienne Ducreux and about Marcel Marceau. You trained with uh, uh, Philippe Gaulier, I think, among other people. What is, right. what is it about France? And I mean, <laughs> why are there not famous British or Italian mind masters besides you? I, I mean, but I mean, you know, what's the French connection? Does it make any sense or is it just a, a random yeah. occurrence? Yeah, it, it, it does make sense. Um it goes back a long way. I mean, you, the traditions go back, you know, all the way, like 1700 BC, but eventually, even from Italy, but eventually it um, it travels to France. And there's a guy called Jacques Capot who was looking at the theatre. Theatre came out in the turn of the century, 19th century, and it was all very... Um, you know, fake and like fake scenery and and rolling up the clouds come in and or moving scenery. And he, he was thinking, no, there's something, there's got to be something more to this. And so he experimented with masks and, and tried to create theatre through the body. And then Etienne de Creux, uh, who trained Marcel Marceau, he picked this up and he said, yes, I want to separate mime from theater and dance. So he codified it and he called it corporeal mime. Um, Jacques Lecoq also was inspired by Capot. And he thought, no, I'm going to free the actor physically so they can explore and do self-devised theater. And the chair could mean a racing horse or a rocket or anything like that. And so it actually, from uh, Jacques Capot, who was looking at it, um, came, came across and he thought, yeah, I, I like to, you know, pick this up. But even before that, you've got the great um, Piros, which was inspired from Italy, from the Commedia dell'arte, from a character called Pegellino. And the French like to stylize things and they, instead of 
uh, this Piro character who had this, um, or Pedrolino, had these hand-me-down clothes. It goes into this Piro, which is wearing these long, beautiful, draped uh, tunic and trousers. And then it was about to play all parts, just using your body. So it was storytelling through the body. So that's where the kind of roots of the French got into it. And, of course, Marcel Marceau made it famous. Right. And from then, now we've got this stereotype of stripy top, white face. (laughs) (laughs) That's mine. That's how we, we see the connection. All right. Let's talk a little bit about that stereotype. In fact, rather than have me or you talk about that stereotype, we send somebody out onto the green in New Haven or somewhere in New Haven uh, to ask people how they feel about mimes. Richard, uh, some of this is going to hurt, but uh, we're going to we're going <laughs> to fix it up uh, after. Let's uh, hear what they had to say. How do you feel about mimes? I think they're pretty interesting. They're sort of like creating objects that really aren't there. So I think it's this cool how like they just create their own space out of nothing. They're kind of creepy and weird because I mean they're just like describing things, but they're not actually doing it. I think they're pretty interesting people. How they can take everyday life situations and create their own vision of how they see it. I think mimes are weird but awesome. What's weird about them? I mean, it's an art form that we don't see a whole lot of these days. I certainly don't run into it very often. And so being a little bit offbeat and retro like that is what's making people be a little bit creeped out. I find them kind of charming in an old school way. I think that they bring back a type of theater that we don't see anymore. Some people have described them as antiquated or even creepy. You don't think any of those things? I mean, I think creepy is a good thing. (laughs) Also antiquated, those are all fine adjectives as far as I'm concerned. It's probably a lost art. All right, Richard Knight, there was good and there was bad, certainly nothing that you haven't heard before. Uh, So go ahead, react to that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in in what they're saying as well. Um, Because since Marcel Marceau, you know, especially 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even the 80s, uh, he created this Bip character, which which is from the last great Piro, and hence you have the white face, which is a mask. And then he had a bit of stripy top, but not a lot. And then became so popular, everyone thought, oh, yeah, French, because he's French. I'll wear a beret. I'll wear a stripy top. I'll wear white gloves. And then they took it out onto the streets. And um, what we get now is we we get like a, a mass repetition of, you know, what people saw. And they tried to do, you know, the walking in the wind, the glass box, all these kind of classics, which has now become a cliché. And the art form has kind of got a bit distorted, um, you know, thanks to it, Stephen uh, Stephen King's mm-hmm. it, the makeup and the grotesqueness of it all. And because of the cliche, you're going to see a lot of that. I mean, I've certainly done a lot of TV stuff where, you know, people are just having a go and rubbishing mimes and, you know, <laughs> I hate mine, get away, you're scary. And because also a white face very close up to someone takes it away from the stage, which it was originally intended to reach a crowd, you know, of hundreds or even thousands, even if it was on the street, it was it was to reach a, a crowd in the theater. So when it's up and close and personal, it, it feels a bit creepy. So um, it is a lost art form as well as what they were saying. It's there isn't even um, Doug was saying that um, and there's not many of us around and that's very true as well. And I think the white face in particular, it comes from a long 
traditional and that may be a bit dated but you don't have to wear a white face to do mime it's not about the white face that's from a, a tradition from performing in the theater i mean even chaplin and buster keaton had a white face it comes from that kind of old tradition they were inspired by that as well i mean in the starting in the 1990s or around the 1990s here in the u.s and perhaps also in the uk there started to be something that we called neo vaudeville and it was kind of i think a real reaction against the highly digitized culture that our kids were growing up with. And I, I brought mm. my son to a lot of things like the Flying Karamazovs, who are jugglers, you know, and a lot of sort of vaudeville-type stage acts. And, and I, I think mime is in there somewhere, too. There was a little bit of reaction formation against how sleek and digital and pre-planned and not fleshly and not of this world children's culture in particular had become. And I would imagine that what you do would benefit from you heard it even in some of those people talking in New Haven that that there was a way in which it harked back to a more humanistic kind of entertainment. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, back in the day, a mime, you know, could the subtlest nuance they could understand what the uh, the emotion was. Nowadays, with digital um, TV and stuff, everything's really quick. But in those days, they didn't have TV or anything digital like that. So for subtle, you know move of the eyebrow or uh, the move of the fingers everything was precise and everything had a meaning or the emotion of it we don't have any actual records of the of the great heroes at the time but that's the kind of thing which the audience could could really pick up and they could really feel the resonance of what a feeling was about or what emotion was about which really conveyed the story and a lot of that has been lost and now we just get the you know walking in the wind trapped in a glass box and the white face. And so we get a reaction to that. You know, I just want to mention as an aside, one of the weird places that there's been this incredible mime ascendancy has been in the world of uh, particularly African-American Christian churches, but sort of evangelical Christian churches. Generally. There are these mime ministries. There are these videos of kind of mime dancing being done to um, to gospel songs that have like 3.3 million views. There's this whole other world. And they're in whiteface and they're, they're doing – they look kind of more or less like classic mimes. So um, I, I guess – uh, Richard, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, sort of a Doug Jones question, which is one of the things that happens for someone like you uh, who has studied so much the way a body moves uh, is that the film industry comes knocking on your door to ask you questions or see if you can help out getting a body to move that's not really a human body. So you've been recruited to work with people like Andy Serkis, best known as, uh, as Gollum, uh, but but on, on the Avengers, and it's it is that whole idea, right? How how do you make a body move if it isn't just a natural human body? I think um, to do that, you first got to understand how the human body works, um, and then you can go, okay, if this is how the human body works, so the human body is actually quite fluid. So when we're looking at Ultron and stuff, we're looking at uh, the movement which isn't fluid. So there's lots of stops and starts, which is robotic. Uh, you know, if you break a leg, you know, it gets dragged along. What happens if what Andy did, he um, he got me to put on one foot um, a skateboard and, and I had to like, because this was motion capture. So then when I was walking away as a robot, one leg is actually moving on the ground and the other leg is being 
smoothly dragged along by a skateboard. So things like that is going to help uh, break up the human um, natural movements. So, or sometimes it could be like two people are holding onto my legs and I've still got to move in, in the opposite to fluid, which is a, is a rigid or, you know, jerky way. So ultimately you can only use your body, but you've got to find the essence or, or a resonance of, of something else, which is solid, rigid, metal-like, or something that has been damaged but still has that kind of quality. So you, ultimately, in the end, you've got to play around with things. But you've just got to find um, the quality of something. Sometimes I look at something like um, it could be, uh, say, like a metal uh, screwdriver or something, and, and I feel it and I touch it and I try and find what is that quality that is uh, that makes it metal and I go oh it's smooth it's strong it's rigid okay let's see if I can recreate that in my physicality hmm. so that's the kind of approaches you know you, you'd have to you know work with and that's how I like to approach it all right we're, we're going to take a little break we'll have more of Richard Knight on the other side of that break also joining us Sean when we really do have to talk about Marcel Marceau who really was the gateway drug for most of us to uh, mime in mass culture let me take just a moment to uh, thank all kinds of people, starting with Heidi and Mary Sue uh, and Carlos Mejia, Mejia, who were all involved in uh, the last two segments in which we try to do something where we bring a version of, of radio to a deaf audience. We call it Radio for the Deaf. You can see it on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. It seems uniquely <laughs> adapted or appropriate anyway that we should be doing it uh, on a show about mime. So think about that, a radio show about mime, which is interpreted for a deaf audience. Uh, well, I think only we would do that. Uh, and so Jonathan McNichol has been on the board today. Uh, Josh Nalea is the person who conceived of and produced the show and did a wonderful job as well. Uh, and tomorrow we have, I think, a conversation that's good. Uh, I've already recorded it, so I know it goes very deep, a conversation with uh, the musician uh, composer Noah Behrman uh, about his latest oeuvre. And it's um, one that incorporates some very shadowy elements, uh, both uh, a disease that he has uh, struggled with his entire life that affects his piano playing uh, and the murder of one of the performers uh, on this album he's just put out. So anyway, it's a, it's, uh, I, I encourage you to listen. Uh, okay, so we got to talk uh, quickly about Marcel Marceau. I just have to quickly make a quick uh, confession uh, and maybe Richard and uh, Sean Wen won't even want to talk to me after I do, but uh, you know, you go to Père Lachaise and you find Marcel Marceau's grave and you have to decide whether you're the kind of person who insists on standing next, next to the grave and having his picture taken, like opening up an invisible umbrella or something. Uh, and unfortunately, I turned out to be that kind of person when I went to Père Lachaise. <laughs> so, and I thought, I am now the like 10 millionth jerk to stand next to this grave and insist on acting like a mime. But there you go. Um, so Richard Knight is still with us, maybe, unless he hung yep. up after that. I'm still here. Mime artist and instructor in physical uh, comedy uh, at uh, the prestigious East 15 Acting School. He's the author of Mime the Gap, Techniques in Mime and Movement. Sean Wen, writer, producer for Youth Radio and a multimedia uh, artist. Uh, she's the author of A 20-Minute Silence Followed by Applause. Um, 
Sean, I just we're going to talk about Marceau here. I, I am old enough so that I remember seeing him on the Red Skelton show. Red Skelton was a guy who kind of made a vaudeville trans- transition from having done a lot of what would have called, been called pantomime uh, to being a network comedy star. Marcel performed on the Ed Sullivan show, which is his biggest thing he's got. Uh, but I can't really say that I knew too much about him. But to what degree was he the person who brought mime into a mainstream American audience? Yeah, um, Marcel Marceau performed for over 60 years. He started after World War II and performed almost up until his death. Um, It's funny because since writing this book, so many people have come up to me to say that they saw him perform in their school auditorium or at the local theater. And he was really going like 200 shows a year, 300 shows a year at the peak of his life. in addition to being like physically ubiquitous, circling the globe, as you said, he went on talk shows, he gave interviews, he wrote forwards to books, he showed up in movies like um, movies by Mel Brooks or in Barbarella. Like he sort of positioned himself as this worldwide ambassador to mime. Um, you know, I think, Richard, and you kind of, I think, alluded to this in the previous segment, there's a way in which we segregate mime and we think of it as something that Marcel Marceau did and anybody else, Shields and Yarnell, or people who kind of seemed like Marcel Marceau. But, uh, but Richard, I would assume Marcel uh, felt as though he had as much in common with Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton as he did with, you know, somebody doing classical mime. Yes, abso- absolutely. Um Basically, uh, he he was a great fan of Charlie Chaplin, and uh, he got a lot of inspiration from him. And also, you know, um, Stan Laurel as well. There's a photo, there's a nice photo of him pointing to 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 Stan and mimicking him. Uh, but yeah, definitely, he he, you know, he he loved the old, you know, it's the physical comedy, especially from the silent movie period, where the art of gesture as an as an example or body posture um, like Chaplin he was very meticulous very meticulous to make sure that every single gesture meant exactly what it was supposed to mean uh, as an example Chaplin and City Lights he was trying to teach this blind girl to uh, present a flower and he, had, he did something like 685 takes because she couldn't get it right and Chaplin was always trying to teach her how to present the flower right to him and Marcel Marceau was was very similar. He he's he studied uh, with the crew, and um, every single part of his body you can see uh, in his isolations, his facial expressions, the amount of time, the rhythm, everything is 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 is, is perfected down to the last last detail. So, Sean Wen, um, you know, at the peak of his fame in America. Marcel Marceau was famous enough so that he could do a cameo on Rowan and Martin's Laughing, and he didn't have to. Nobody had to say who he was. Everybody got the joke. Um, and was he was he world famous? Was he an international star? Did people outside the Western world know who he was? Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, there are stories about him um, performing in Vietnam after the Vietnam War, or performing in China and Japan. Um, not only was he, you know, traveling all over the world, but I think in, in some ways, um, when I was talking to his students in France, they felt like his fame, you know, came out of the Americans, um, out of his love, love and popularity in America. I mean, in aligning himself with Chaplin and Buster Keaton rather than with DeCrew, he was 
trying to position himself more as an American populist icon. Um, and, and speaking of American populist icons and looking towards the futurists instead of looking towards the past at, at Keaton and Chaplin, he had an influence on Michael Jackson. I mean, the, the first time I saw Michael Jackson do the moonwalk, just because I grew up around two classical mimes, I thought, oh. <laughs> so but maybe you can flesh that out a little bit for us, Sean. Uh, yeah, uh, Michael Jackson was very open about modeling his moonwalk after Marcel Marceau's Walking Against the Wind. And um, in the 90s, there was like a famous HBO special between Michael Jackson and Marcel Marceau, where, um, you know, basically they mime towards each other. And, um, you know, Marcel Marceau makes this announcement, this is the king of pop meeting the king of mime. Um, it was met with a lot of fanfare. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, a way in which you look at Marceau in particular and his classic white face, and there often are the kind of hints of teardrops or something uh, on them. Um, you write that, uh, you, you say that Marceau actually was in many ways a, a sad, a somewhat sad person who had a lot of problems with his personal relationships having to do with oral communication. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I was sort of thinking about that, about whether or not Marceau is a sad clown or if he is a pure figure in real life. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly he had sort of a, a troubled personal life. Um, he had three different marriages. He, I mean, he traveled so much and performed so much that it really put a strain on his interpersonal relationships. But, you know, I also in some ways think that, you know, rather than being a sad clown, Marceau is more of the Harlequin figure. Mm -hmm. In that, like, you know, Harlequin is probably the, the best known of the Commedia dell'arte characters. He, um, you know, is very physically agile, and he steals Columbina from Pierrot. Um, you know, Marceau was a little bit of a Lothario, and so I think that it's, it's not totally fair to say that he was a Pierrot himself. That's right. His last wife, I believe, was 19 years old when he was in his 50s. When they met. When they met, when they met, yes. Um, we should quickly say we're almost out of time here. I don't, I don't think I have time for it. I, I did want to just, Sean, quickly say, in addition to everything else, this guy was pretty heroic, right? He, he uh, was 16 years old in the, when the Nazis occupied France, and he did things to save people. I don't know if you can just say that in 60 seconds. Uh, yeah, um, Marcel Marceau was a hero in the French Resistance. He uh, famously smuggled Jewish children from um, an orphanage over the Swiss Alps into safety. He would forge papers to make them seem younger so that they weren't targeted by concentration camps. Um, he was very active in the French resistance, as was his older brother. All right. Well, uh, this is all fascinating stuff, and we've been so lucky to have uh, so many wonderful guests, uh, Doug Jones, Richard Knight. Uh, his book is Mime the Gap, Techniques in Mime and Movement, and Sean Wen, whose book is uh, a 20-minute silence followed by applause. Uh, Sean Wen, writer and producer for Youth Radio, Radio and a Multimedia Artist. All right. So we have to stop there, but thanks for listening. Uh, if you missed any of the show, I would really encourage you to go back and uh, experience the beginning of the show over at the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page simply because uh, you can see our wonderful interpreters actually interpreting mime issues anyway through American Sign Language. I also want to mention somebody just told me that today is our ninth anniversary, so the Colin McEnroe Show is about to enter its tenth year. I wonder what we'll do. We are